Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Kasimba is a certified interventional nephrologist. He also has the popular YouTube channel, Your Kidney, Your Health, and is on the board of the Texas Kidney Foundation. Dr. Butt, nice to have you on today. Awesome to be here, man. Awesome to be here, Chase. Kasim, I'm just going to go by that if that's all right with you. Yeah, it's Kasim, but totally cool. Yeah. I am terrible <laughs> with pronouncing names. I'm sorry. <laughs> My name is horrible to pronounce. So go ahead. It's yeah, all right. I keep wanting to use the Q in the front. I got to get better at that. Pretend it's a K. You'll be fine. Go ahead. I love your YouTube channel. I've watched quite a few videos on there. It seems to be very relevant information, high quality, and you make it pretty energetic and interesting, which is nice to see. A lot of physicians can be a little dull on their podcast or YouTube videos. So especially nephrologists, man. So I'm well aware of the nephrologists and how they are. So my goal was to actually just make it simple and fun, right? Our collective attention span now is just so minimal at this point, you know, instant gratification. So we need to get a concise message in quickly. So I try to make my videos three to five minutes. I try to make it entertaining, throw a little joke in here and there, but I want people to leave with two or three points that they learn something. So that's my goal. And then if they want to learn more, they can continue to learn on their own. But embed them with those and then go from there. I think that's really useful for this particular topic since we're going to really be focusing on you know, med students and the educational, the clinical aspect of it. So I do like to start off with an icebreaker question. And I'm curious, what is one of the most outrageous things that you've seen in like the medical or academic setting? I just remember being a med student, how you were just always so scared. What's your role there, right? How much can you intercede? I remember one of the craziest times I had was in my OB-GYN rotation. I remember when we had to do those pap smears. And I remember getting a pap smear. And for some reason, this clinic, it was in New Jersey, that had these old school kind of stirrups, you know, like the ones there, which we'll call it, the ones that are like metallic or whatever. And I didn't know how to properly use them. And I opened them up and then somehow it snapped down. And she goes, you got me, you got me. And I'm like, what? And I was actually slapped down on her labia and it was tight on it. Oh my God, I felt so bad. And it was a funny thing. Well, good thing was that right afterwards, she just started laughing. So I'm so glad, but it was one of the most worst experiences I ever had. That goes to show like when you're so not confident in what you're doing, you know, these kind of things can kind of happen. I seem to get a lot of worst case or most amazing stories in the OB-GYN rotations. There's just a lot of stuff that happens in there. Yeah, yeah. It's a crazy field. It's one I could probably never be in, to be honest with you. And that one luckily went the best way possible. It could have gone completely the opposite way and you just would have been scarred for life. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about interventional nephrology because I don't think I'm even that familiar with what an interventional nephrologist does versus a normal nephrologist or so quite honestly, so I was I graduated in two thousand five from med school. I went to St. George's, which is in Caribbean, so a lot of your listeners can relate to that. But when I was in med school, I had no idea what an interventional nephrologist was either. This is something I discovered kind of along the way. And that's what I think a lot of you guys really need to understand is sometimes you don't have it all down, right? In your third or fourth year, you just don't know what you want to do. So sometimes along the way, you kind of pick up things and little forks in the road come and you kind of guide your life in those directions. Sometimes you just don't have a destination. You kind of have to find that destination, right? So that's how I wound up in interventional nephrology. 
I did my internal medicine rotation in 2005 to 2008. I went to LSU in Shreveport, Louisiana. At that time in the 2000s, man, like everyone was kind of doing specialists, right? Like you wanted to be at fellowship. That was a thing in the 2000s. Now, a lot of times people are going for the hospitalist gigs in internal medicine. So you're getting these jobs that are 12 hour shifts, seven on, seven off, whatever the shifts are. But back in the day, you wanted to be a specialist. So I was like, okay, I need to find a specialist. <laughs> so I'm looking around. I like nephrology. I didn't necessarily have a passion for it, but I did like it. What was good was I knew I can get into my program at LSU. So that's another thing your listeners should know is when you're applying for residency spots, let's just say you want to be a cardiologist or you want to be an endocrinologist or whatever it is, right? And when you're applying for residencies, it's ideal to see if those residency areas have specialists within their school, right? They always like to prefer in-house officers. So if you've been there an internal medicine resident for three years, guess what? You know, and they know you, they're like, you know what? You know, Chase is a cool guy. Let's get him into our cardiology program. We know him. So it's better than them for finding an applicant from like LA or somewhere else where they don't know who they are. That's one piece of advice there. That's how I wound up being nephrology. Now, when I was in nephrology, I enjoyed it. Nephrology is kind of like a glorified internal medicine, if you would. Like it's like internal medicine on steroids. We can't ignore any system. Like it's not like you could just come in and go, I'm going to do my colonoscopy and leave. I'm going to do my left heart cath and leave. And I'm not negating what those people do, but nephrologists have to pay attention to the whole human being because the electrolytes, the pH balance, the you know, urine output, the kidney failure, it's all related to that. So when I was in my program there at LSU, coincidentally, interventional nephrology was taught there as well. So in that training, in my two years of fellowship for nephrology, I got training for interventional nephrology. I got that training there. And interventional nephrology is just a little different. So you guys out there that are med students, you've seen the dialysis accesses in people's arms, right? You've seen their catheters in their neck. So I put those catheters in, I exchange those catheters. They have fistulas and grafts in their arm. I don't necessarily create those, but afterwards I do percutaneous interventions afterwards. So I go in there with a little balloon over a wire through a sheet and put in stents and all these other things. I put in stents that can declot them if they're clotted. It's kind of fun. It's kind of neat. Now I'm not exclusively an interventional nephrologist. I'm still a clinical nephrologist as well. So I do clinical nephrology. So one week I'm doing clinical nephrology, which is hospital consults, which is CKD clinics, which is you know dialysis rounds. But the other week I'm doing interventional procedures. So that's how I, I guess, got to my position. There's a lot to digest there. I think it's very interesting because other IMGs and FMGs, you know, a lot of times we struggle to get into any residency or just happy to get into a certain spot. And thinking that far ahead into what fellowship, especially if we have no experience in it, we weren't able to get a clinical rotation in that. We've never seen it before. It's hard to think that far ahead and then to pick a residency spot that's going to have that fellowship on top of it. So there's just a lot, a lot going on there. My story is not that I wanted nephrology either. You see what I'm saying? I didn't leave fourth year of med school going, I want to be a nephrologist. I had no idea. I was saying, if you have that goal, you're at third or fourth year, you're like, I love cardiology. I love reading EKG. When you're selecting a residency spot, that's ideal that you have one there at that program. But again, I didn't figure it out. So I did not have it figured out third or fourth year. So when I got to that position, again, the forks in the road came and I just made my decisions along the way. I had no ambition to be an intervention nephrologist, but I wound up here. Sometimes it's serendipitous. You just see what's in front of you at the time and pick the best path at that point in time. Life's like that. I don't think you have to have a destination. <laughs> you just kind of go along for the journey, right? And I think it's interesting you mentioned that back during that period of time when you were going into your residency, 
the thing to do was to become a fellow. And now you've said that it's changed a lot. There's more focus on hospitalist medicine for the past few years. And then now it seems to even be changing more towards these alternative models like direct primary care, concierge medicine, things that are a little outside of the hospital. You have more autonomy. You don't have to mess around with insurance as much and all of that headache. So it's just constantly evolving. And I guess we can't really make good plans. We just have to be open to whatever is put in front of us. Yeah, I think you just have to be able to accept change, right? So if change is coming, you're able to adapt to it, not just be rigid in your philosophy or rigid in what you're thinking. Like you have to kind of change. And the direct primary care thing is actually pretty neat too. And I have some friends of mine and I actually hooked up my dad, who's like 75 with a direct primary care and I love it. Now, he can't get over the fact he has to pay $150 a month <laughs> to a doctor. <laughs> but I'm like, Dad, you're texting her all the time. You're texting her, you know, your blood pressure. You're texting her your blood sugars. It's awesome experience. You're not going to get that with another doctor. And again, that gives you that one-on-one relationship with patients, takes the third-party payer out. That's a lot of times, the, I think the problem in medicine is having a third-party payer. It gives you an inefficient market, but also gives you someone in between, right? Whether that be Medicare or commercial insurance. So. It's an interesting model, and I wonder where it's going to go eventually. Yeah, definitely. I've been following it for the past couple of years since I didn't know what DPC was until my fourth year elective rotations. I happened to just come across it, found a local institute, asked if I could rotate there. I'm like, huh, this is kind of how I pictured medicine to be before I got to med school. That's kind of the old school model. You know, like that's how it was back in the day. The doctor come to your house or having that one-on-one relationship. Now, so you don't have to come to the house as much. And although I do know some DPCs that do go to the, make some house visits as well too. But you can do it through like this, like a Zoom, a phone call. And after a while, like when you're practicing medicine, you get to know your patients and you know your patients' bodies, right? So when my patient calls me, tells me she's swollen, I, I know that 20 of Lasix, 20 milligrams of Lasix will help her. So, you know, you don't necessarily need to see them physically all the time. And again, when you have that one-on-one relationship, it makes medicine so much more fun. It really does. I don't practice DBC, obviously, but my experience with my friends that do it, so they enjoy it. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I've even seen some going into now specialist medicine in DPC, which I'm not sure how that works. I'm sure it's very different for each one, but... That would be extremely interesting. I don't know how that would work. I mean, I guess it could. It could work, but I just don't know how you would go about it, you know? Hospitals and universities spend countless hours mediating clinical rotations between students and physicians. Students can search out and request their own rotations. Preceptors will be notified of the request and decide if their schedule will allow it. Learners and educators regain control over their schedules while reducing staff hours and overhead. Go to findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. Well, all right, let's get back on track a little. I love talking about that stuff, but I do want to kind of put in some information here or direct students in a way that I know it's been a while since you were a student and through your residencies, but for students listening to this, if they are interested in nephrology in general, are there a few pointers, some tips, some resources or mistakes that you see others or that you made back then that would be very helpful to know about ahead of time? What's interesting is like knowing where the market is going, right? So I wonder where nephrology is going to be in a few years, you know, like I don't like to talk about just money. I don't think life is just about money, but money matters, right? In the sense that what's your lifestyle going to be? How much are you going to make? And you wonder like in five or 10 years, how that model will be. Recently, about 
was it about a year ago, President Trump came out with an executive order on kidney disease, talking about how they're going to address kidney disease and payments and stuff like that. The way a lot of medicine is, we're talking about DBC, but a lot of medicine is going towards what they call shared savings plans, which is like, essentially you have one doctor being responsible, like your primary doctor being responsible. But in this case, in this executive order, it's going to be the kidney doctor being responsible. That doctor is going to share in the savings to Medicare for those patients. If you're going into the world of nephrology, I would definitely read about those programs, the shared savings models, the American Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative and see, you know, is this the field you want to go into? You have to understand that when you're a doctor, there's different revenue streams that come your way outside of just seeing a consult, okay? So if you see a consult in the hospital or see a patient in your clinic, there's more ways to make revenue outside of that simplistic model. In nephrology, particularly, the way you make money is dialysis units, right? So when you build a dialysis unit, you go into a joint venture with big dialysis companies, such as DaVita, Fresenius, US Renal, and you go in at a certain percentage, like 49, they own 51, you own 49%, maybe 40, 60, whatever it is. And you make money off of the patients that come there, they bill for dialysis visits. Do you see what I'm saying? And so then they have these things called medical directorships as well as too. you can get medical directorships to dialysis units. But even if you're not in nephrology, there's medical directorships available for hospice agencies, for hospitals, all these other things as well too, that can be revenue streams to you. And typically, those medical directorships aren't that complicated. Now, you do have responsibility there, but typically, they involve a monthly meeting, a quarterly meeting, or something like that, but they need a doctor to be that medical director. So that's another revenue stream there, too. The other thing I would say is, is in the world of nephrology, you have to know the group you're joining. I don't know if I could be a solo practitioner. I'm not a solo practitioner. My group has 15 physicians. When we started, we had three. When I came in, it was another three, so we were six of us. When you're joining a practice, you have to know the culture of that practice, right? So you're a young person coming out like yourself. You don't want to be in a practice with all 50, 60, 70-year-old doctors. Trust me, you do not. Because the model is not a growth model. The model is I'm retiring, my kids are in college, you know, I'm there. So that's another thing you'd have to look at is who's in that group. You probably want that group to be consistent of mostly 30 or 40-year-olds that are in the growth phase of their lives as well too. So that's another thing about nephrology, you know, who's going to be out there, who's going to be eager to get consults and things like that. Those are key factors, I think. And those are factors that are not just applicable to nephrology, but to other fields too. For instance, if you're doing cardiology, you may want to buy into a vascular center or what they call an amateurity surgical center in that group, because that's a revenue stream that comes to you as well. Very interesting. I hadn't thought about it that far ahead with just the different almost not side gigs, I don't know if that would be the correct term, but it's different diversification of your income streams. It's a diversification, but it's like a diversification within the practice, right? So it's weird. You can view it two different ways, right? You can view it as I'm getting my baseline salary of say 300,000. I'm just making that number up, by the way. But from this dialysis center, I'm getting another 50K a year. From this medical directorship of a hospice agency, I'm getting 20,000 a year. From owning the building that my office is in, I'm making... 10,000 a year, but I'm building equity in that building. You see what I'm saying? So these all these different revenue streams you got to think about. But the other side of that is, yeah, you have all these revenue streams and you're part of a practice, but that kind of becomes like what they call the golden handcuffs too. So if you're not happy in that practice and you turn 45 years old, you're not only reliant on your salary from that practice, you're also reliant on all the revenue streams, all those other revenue streams as well too. So it's interesting in the corporate world, 
they call it the golden handcuffs, right? Where they give you all these stocks in the company, all this stuff. But guess what? You got to be in that company to, to partake in it. So that can be the other side of it too. So there's revenue streams you want to pay attention to. Uh, those definitely want to be a part of, but you got to remember they can be golden handcuffs that can lock you into that position for a long time. Yeah, I've been hearing that term a lot more lately in the physician world. You just don't want to get necessarily, or maybe it's okay to get locked into those positions. Just be aware of them ahead of time so you're not caught off guard. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, something happens, you turn 45, your wife says, hey, I'm getting a job in California or New York and I want to move, honey. And guess what? But you're making 300 here and you have all these side gigs, side revenues, you're making 500K. And then you're going to get a job in New York for, you know, 150, you know, like, so that kind of locks you in. You see what I'm saying? That's where I think like personal growth, personal development and learning how to invest on your own is kind of crucial in that scenario. And that's probably a whole other podcast, (laughs) but definitely I think those are kind of important as well too. I'm kind of curious to hear your viewpoints on a physician, a preceptor that might be thinking about taking on students in nephrology in particular if there are certain things that they should maybe look out for, certain things that have changed or just easier ways to get the point across to incoming students? I think what happens is in the nephrology world, nephrologists are extremely analytical people, right? They're really smart. I'm not saying I'm really smart, but I'm saying generally there's analytical people have a hard time communicating sometimes because they use such high verbiage and they're really intelligent. So it's hard for them to communicate complex things to simple language. So I think that's one of the things, especially in what my videos that I try to do, that's something I think nephrologists have to concentrate on because you want the next generation of nephrologists to be excited about nephrology, right? Excited about, not kidney disease, but <laughs> excited about, you know, kidneys. So I think that's one thing. Also, I think one big thing, I think as a nephrologist and you're having a preceptor with you, I think you got to put yourself back into that role. How was I when I was a third or fourth year med student? How much did I know? So when you're explaining to somebody something about whatever disease process it is, you got to, you know, explain it to them on their level. Well, how's a fourth year med student think about this disease? What's his experience? What's the basics? You know, like, how do you assess a volume status properly on a patient? You know, like things like that. Like where to check for edema? I always, when I have people shadow me and I've had people shadow me as far as like med students, med students, not med students, but college students and stuff. But I always like to talk to them about the life aspects, the logistical things that go on with, you know, nephrology. How do you, you know, help people that can't help themselves, you know, (laughs) like for whatever reason, it could be socioeconomic, but it can be also their own particular decision-making capacity. So those are things I think definitely a nephrologist can do to communicate better with third or fourth year med students, especially third or fourth year med school. You guys are just overwhelmed with so much information going in your heads that you're just wanting to pass this, your step twos, learning all this stuff, you're not learning all the socioeconomic issues that these patients may have or psychological issues. And those are probably 50% of your game when you get out there in the field. When you're out there helping people, like you have to deal with their problems. You know, <laughs> Real world problems, not just textbook problems. <laughs> That's a big transition, by the way, because you're going to be infatuated with these little textbooks behind me. You're going to be infatuated with what they're saying, but it's like, uh, is this really applicable? Am I going to start that medication on this patient? Because I know they're not going to take it. It's different things, you know? Well, I love the advice you've given so far and definitely would recommend the YouTube channel, Your Kidneys, Your Health, to anyone listening to this to get some more nephrology topics and updated information. Do you have any other resources or last words for the audience? 
I'm on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter-ish, I guess I'm on there, but I'm not really doing anything. <laughs> but yeah, if you can like my page, subscribe to my page, but also just give me comments. And you know, like if you watch my videos, you don't have to be me or whatever, but I think you definitely have to diversify yourself, work on communication, work on marketing. That's crucial. Everyone's going to be a commodity unless you're able to differentiate yourself and you're able to self-brand yourself. So you need to self-brand yourself as someone different, not just every other hospitalist or every other cardiologist, but something different. It doesn't have to be videos, but it has to be something different so that you stand out. Yeah, definitely. In this world, you got to stand out. There's so many media sources out there, blogs, videos, podcasts. Some way to really branch out is a way to make yourself known and get into the positions you like. Well, Guzim, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Hope you the best of luck with growing your YouTube channel. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.